Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Dylan Field, founder of Figma and former Thiel Fellow. We talk about the UI design tool he and his team are developing to help designers collaborate more efficiently, Figma's approach to design, and how they measure success. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Mary Tressler. Today, I'm here with Dylan Field, CEO and co-founder of Figma. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'd love for you to start off and tell people uh, a little bit about you and your background. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Sonoma County in California. And uh, for those who don't know, O'Reilly is, uh, is in Sonoma County as well, in Sebastopol. <laughs> and uh, so that was actually the start of sort of my exposure to technology was that in high school, I, was, I had the honor to work at O'Reilly as an intern. And um, I was there for a few years. Um, after that, I went to Brown, where I studied CS and math. And while I was there, I also was interning at various places, including Indonero and LinkedIn and Flipboard. I guess while I was at Flipboard, that was really when I first had a lot of exposure to design. I had definitely been exposed before, but not in a not in a way that I was working directly on design problems every day. And at Flipboard, they were really kind to me. They let me hang out with the design team and work on the design team and uh, and actually get mentored as well. And so hmm. I was pretty blown away by how broken the tools were and also just the way that the tools inhibited process. Mm-hmm. I kind of filed that away as a problem to solve one day. Uh, meanwhile, at Brown, uh, I was so I was at this point, I was taking some time off from my junior year. I'd finished uh, the first five semesters at Brown and uh, had finished junior fall and went to the Flipboard for a six-month internship on leave of absence. And I had been talking with my now co-founder, then good friend, Evan Wallace, who is one of, if not the smartest people I know. And um, he had been doing these really cool explorations into a technology called WebGL. And WebGL is basically a way to access the graphics card on your computer. And so with WebGL, he was doing just amazing stuff. For example, one experiment he did, which is still like referred to as the canonical demo for WebGL four years later, is you have this giant sphere in a pool of water and you can move it around and you see all the ripples in real time. It's like absolutely gorgeous. And uh, it's amazing when you look at it, and you're just just as a technical feat, but then you're like, wow, it's also in the browser. That's insane. How is this happening? Um, and so with that technology, we started to think, man, there's probably some really interesting ways that we could change the landscape of creative tools with WebGL. And that led me to Figma. Uh, and so Evan and I started Figma with support of the Teal Fellowship. And we explored a lot and sort of started to try to figure out how we wanted to make a dent in creative tools. That's awesome. So you mentioned WebGL. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the thinking and what, what really prompted you to build Figma? Were you looking at the tools market for designers? How did this all come to be? Yeah. So at some point when Eva and I were first thinking about starting a company, mm-hmm. we were very excited about WebGL and we knew we wanted to look into various ideas. And so we sort of made this giant list of ideas. And of those ideas, I'd say maybe 95% of them were creative tools. And so we knew immediately we wanted to work in creative tools. However, we didn't know exactly what um, we wanted to build at first. And so we basically just started building stuff. And at first, we were looking at some pretty crazy things. For example, we had one thing we built, which took a 2D image and transformed it with some annotations by a user into a 3D scene. In more concrete terms, you could take like a picture of skyscrapers, say, here's a skyscraper, here's a skyscraper. And in less than like a minute, you could be rotating around that scene with a camera and it would be like it's in three dimensions. It was very cool Mm -hmm. technology. 
Um, but when we looked at applications for it, we just weren't really sure like what this would be and if they maybe in the real estate business, but we couldn't imagine that being something that was interesting to us to build as a company. So we kind of kept building stuff. And so another thing we built was we looked at all this research going on in computational photography and photo editing. And we started playing around there and just just trying different things out. But and we got some cool results. Like for example, we made this amazing face swap app where you can swap the faces of two people, you know, and usually it's something that takes many hours if you know what you're doing in Photoshop and we can make it so that you could do it in like less than a minute or so. Hmm. Um, and the results were quite good. Like you could often not tell. And people we would show this to people and they would just be totally wowed. But at the end of the day, it seemed like we were just making it easier for people to create memes. And that just wasn't fulfilling for us. So we kind of kept trying to sort of kept massaging where do we want to make this impact in creative tools. And then eventually we realized that UI design was an area that really it fit a number of criteria for us. First of all, it was something that we were extremely passionate about. Secondly, we thought that there was a big opportunity in terms of the timing. We thought that Adobe had sort of um, had really sat on their laurels there, you know, that they had had some really great products, but there wasn't a specific product for interface design out there yet. And we thought that there was um, a big opportunity to make one. This is around, you know, right, right around when fireworks died in 2012, mm-hmm. that we were thinking about this. And um, in addition, we were also, we kind of looked at the world around us and we thought, man, the opportunity for uh, the market here is immense. We just saw the design market exploding in size and the demand for design increasing more than ever before. And so as we studied it more, we realized too that designers are increasingly at the center of their organizations. You know, they are these, uh, they're not just like working alone in a corner. They are actually working collaboratively with other designers. They're working with engineers. They're working with product management, with executives. Uh, They're extremely connected inside the organization, but their tools in contrast are still offline and disconnected. And so we decided we wanted to build the first online collaborative tool for interface design. That's awesome. So how would you describe the design process at Figma? Sure. Um, how deep do you want to make me to go? Because for us, it's kind of meta and we can really, uh, I could go all day on this question. <laughs> well, give me a few minutes of, of uh, what, a, what a typical scenario might look like. Sure. So first of all, you know, we design everything in Figma. So again, very, very meta. Um, <laughs> something you have to get used to as you as you work at Figma and start designing things because you're inside the tool, designing the tool, uh, which is always interesting. That actually was a problem for a little bit. You know, when we were first starting off before our software was at the quality bar it is now, uh, you know, we had a lot of bugs. And this was, you know, maybe two years ago. And we gave it to our designer and we mandated that uh, everyone at Figma use Figma for design now. And um, that was really frustrating for her. We had only one designer at that point. <laughs> and she was very frustrated because she's like, well, do you want output or do you want, you know, me to complain about bugs? And uh, you know, we kind of hemmed in hot and said, well, you know, we got to fix the bugs. So let us know what's blockers and we'll fix those first. And uh, within, you know, a very short amount of time after that, because she was so adamantly uh, saying, like, here's the thing that makes it so I can't do work. Here's the thing that makes it so I can't do work. We had fixed a lot of the biggest issues because of that. Um, that's something that we always are focused on is quality. We're always thinking about how do we make the, the best quality experience for our customers? So, you know, we always test everything before it goes out a week beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do lots of prototyping. Uh, so... One of the things that's very instrumental to our design process is that uh, we try to make it so that we try to create an environment from the start where designers and engineers can work in close pairs together on problems. Mm-hmm. Because we find that that kind of leads to the most uh, innovative, interesting solutions. Um, 
And that lets us rapidly prototype and just try lots of things out and iterate on them. And I think that sometimes if you have a designer in a vacuum or an engineer in a vacuum, the feedback loop just isn't quite complete. So we try to make that feedback loop happen as soon as possible. And then I guess another aspect of our design process, which is maybe a little bit different than other companies, is that we care a ton about customer feedback. Um, mm-hmm. We encourage people to write in all the time. And when people write in, it directly affects our roadmap. Uh, and so we often show early builds to customers. You know, we're getting on phone calls with customers to try to say, okay, like, is this what you want? Are we heading in the right direction here? And we really solicit feedback from our customers in a, in a pretty substantial way. So there's a lot more there too. I, I could talk, keep talking for quite a while, like I said, but maybe that's like a little bit of an overview of some of the things that are unique about our process. Sure. Well, it sounds like you're working, you know, you're taking a lot of the best practices of design and making sure that you're, you're using them every day. Yeah, um, of course. Right. So you, you, um, you have collaboration, your Figma does with Slack, and I'd love to hear how you came to the decision to, to integrate Slack. Sure. So as we were building Figma, there's a lot of stuff that you want notifications around. Um, and one of the questions that we had was, is there, is it, would it be better to make notifications in our own product and build out that experience? Or mm-hmm. would it be better for us to um, integrate with something like Slack that all of our pilot teams are already using and instead like have an inbox there? And we kind of came to the decision that actually we don't feel like we need another inbox here. Um, it's that's like the last thing that we want is another thing to check every all the time. And so we wanted to make Figma as useful as possible, but not feel make it feel like people had to come back constantly to learn the latest or have that fear of missing out. And so um, we really moved a lot of our notifications to Slack for messaging. Mm-hmm. And then another benefit of that is that all of the notifications that way are in context. So like, let's say that we're having a conversation about something. The comments live in Figma, and you can go to the Figma file to find out what they are if you want. And they're all attached to a spatial location, which is how we're different for comments. But mm-hmm. at the same time, those comments are mirrored in the Slack channel. So that's really valuable, I think, for people, because then you can search it, and you can also uh, see sort of the history of how you arrived at that comment and also where that comment ended up leading. Um, but I think it's important to note, too, that Slack isn't the only way to collaborate with Figma. There's a lot of areas that, I mean, collaboration is built into the product from the ground up in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Slack is only one part of that. So, for example, team files, every, you can, when you have a team on Figma, you can access all the files for that team just through Figma itself. You can also share a link to any file. So if I share a link to a file with you, you can just click on that link and access it. And then we also have some security and permissions for people that are more in enterprise setting. For commenting, like I was just discussing, you can make comments very easily. And those can be echoed to Slack or not. It's up to you. And then uh, some other big ones on the tool side. So one is shared colors and assets. Uh, Shared colors is something that currently exists. And it's basically a way to have your entire brand palette on Figma in a way that anyone can access. And that way you can be consistent about the colors you're using. Another thing that we're working on is shared assets. Uh, This is kind of like, if you're familiar with Sketch, it's like a symbol. uh, Mm -hmm. But instead of living in one document, it lives across all of your files and lives in your team instead. So that you can set up like an icon library, for example, and anyone from your team can pull from that library and also see when there's something's been updated. Uh, So that's something that's in the process. We're working on that right now. And then finally, like the biggest, the like a huge feature that we're working on and is really the focus of a lot of our efforts right now, which I'm really excited about, is multiplayer. And that's essentially, it's very similar to Google Docs. It's the concept of being able to be in the same document with somebody else at the same time. Uh, And 
Yeah, so multiplayer is uh, it's a pretty big undertaking for us, but we are already starting to play with some early prototypes, mm-hmm. and it is it's awesome. Um, I think it's going to really change the way that people design. That's amazing. I mean, we all, well, many of us complain about Google Docs for several reasons, but you think back to before Google Docs and how we used to share and collaborate, and it feels... Uh, it, it feels very archaic when you look back on it to think you were sending around PDF files or, or whatever the case may be. And it seems to me the heart of what you're doing is so focused on making sure that people, you make it easy for people to collaborate. Exactly. Um, that's fantastic. So I want to switch gears a little bit and go back to your days at Brown. Sure. Um, you, you know, when you were there, you were awarded the Thiel Fellowship in 2012, I think it was. And he said something that I thought was interesting. Uh, the fact that believes education is part of the establishment that holds back development of technological advancements and innovations. And I love talking about education, where things are going and, and how that relates to innovation. I'm curious to hear if you agree with that statement um, or how your thinking has evolved in the last few years on this topic. Yeah, I guess, do you have more context in that one in terms of sort of what he was, uh, you know, I, I guess I've heard this theory, for example, I'm not sure if this is what you're referencing, where he says that basically, um, you know, because of the student debt crisis and the fact that people are taking on so many student loans, mm-hmm. uh, that then they're forced into other jobs and not able to take risks. And then, uh, you know, because that where that contributes to the, sort of like a technological slowdown. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of what you're referencing or... Um, I am, but what made me think of it is is the whole idea of uh, education versus practical experience, and why does it have oh, to see. be an either or uh, situation? Yeah, I really don't think it has to be either or. I I don't know. I mean, personally, when I when I look at my time at Brown, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was amazing, you know. And I I always want to learn more things. So it definitely to me doesn't seem like an either or. Um, in terms of starting a company, of course, I, I wanted to be all in because I wanted to make Figma a success and, you know, take it to its absolute max. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that in the context of Brown. And also I had this like amazing opportunity to take a Teal Fellowship, which is $100,000 over two years. I mean, that <laughs> just didn't seem like something that that was real, right? Like it it's amazing to have that opportunity. I couldn't imagine not taking it. Uh, you know, if you look sort of, I mean, one one way I sometimes think about things is I put myself like 10 years in the future. I look back and I say, like, would I regret it or not? And in this case, if I weren't didn't take it, I would definitely have regretted it. So, yeah, so I, I guess the way I see it is that it's just tough because um, right now I think that there's a lot of students that are not educated about sort of um, which majors lead to uh, sort of practical skills and careers right away versus mm-hmm. which ones do. I think that, that information maybe is not as public as it could be. I also think it's relevant to design education, actually. I uh, I think a lot of design education is, is more in the realm of theory right now for some mm-hmm. things. And um, that's something I'm really interested in, is how do we get more interface design classes in the world? Um, for example, right now, we're, we're supporting a class at Berkeley. It's a 220-person class uh, for UI design. And it's been just amazing to see sort of like, you know, students are coming from pretty beginner backgrounds and they're learning a ton and they're using Figma to do it. And I just hope that we can do more of that as the company grows. That's awesome. That sounds like fun. You have like an instant user base that you get great feedback on, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's different from the context of professional teams for sure. But it's also, I think, you know, I I think of it as like, how do we one day not just get designers to use Figma, but get other people to be able to learn how to visually communicate as well. And I Mm -hmm. think that this is an 
early test into how to do that. You know, how do we make it so that our product is is very easy to learn for anyone, even if they're not coming from another tool? That's sure. important to me. Mm. So are these, are the folks that are taking this, are they in the design program? Or are they across um, different programs at Berkeley? Yeah, they're, they're very multidisciplinary, actually. Um, I haven't done like a demographics. I haven't asked for demographics yet, but um, but I should. My impression so far, though, is that they are a mixture of design students, CS students, and and other students from other disciplines. That is awesome. Um, well, and it's true. It's if you can, if there are tools available and I think every, you know, you hear the common, everyone should learn or have some literacy about design, but I think you nail it down with being able to visually communicate, um, with other people, regardless of what your role is, is so critical. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. So, um, just a few more questions about, um, Figma and the team there. Um, how big is it? Uh, and how have you grown since your first days? I'd love to hear a little bit about, you mentioned pairing designers and developers. Uh, what does that ratio look like? Those kinds of things. Yeah. So we're 17 people now, which is, uh, Ooh. which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a really cool size. Cause it's just like you walk in the office and you know, there's really that buzz. Um, and then in terms of our engineering and design, we have eight engineers and we have four designers right now. Uh, so it's like a one to two ratio mm-hmm. that said, uh, two of those engineers are more back-end server side. So it ends up being probably a one-to-one ratio in terms of when you're working on a project. A lot of times engineers are on one project and designers are on multiple projects. Um, mm. So yeah, it's um, it's a lot of fun right now. And we're also hiring. I guess it's the plug I have to make. So if you're <laughs> interested, if you're an engineer or designer interested in this stuff, we're more hiring for engineers right now. But um, yeah, if you're an engineer, let us know. We, uh, we definitely have open opportunities. You can find them online at figma.com. That's my plug. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, you need to do it. Um, So, you know, you mentioned what you're doing with with Berkeley. And can you talk a little bit about sort of where you are uh, with the tool in terms of the users that you have uh, engaged with it? I know it's private now. You're going to turn it public. But, you know, talk a little bit about where you're at and how you measure success at this point. Yeah. So I think you know, we can't just measure success by okay, the number of users that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, it's about, okay, other people that are using Figma, you know, it, the real interesting question for us is, are they deeply engaging of it, with it? Mm-hmm. Is this their tool of choice? Are they using it for the things that we think they sh- they're using it for, right? Is our value proposition that we think is really important? Is that being shown to be important by our customer base? And so far, it seems to be. That's my artificial impression, but I'll get back to that. Um, really, it's about this depth of interaction. So, we're, when we look at the data, you know, it's there's no, I wouldn't say average is a good way to look at it, but for example, when you're kind of looking at the distribution of how people use it, you know, some people they log in once and they 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 just don't log in again, right? That's just your standard internet company. Um, everyone has that, and so obviously try to reduce the number of people that do that. But then for the people that do use us, uh, we're seeing them just in it all day long. So it really echoes the workday, including, by the way, we have a huge uh, dip in our numbers on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's when people are not using us as much. Um, hmm. So really, it's like, okay, if you're a designer, are you using this for your work? That's a big question. And then I guess the next level question is um, more qualitative, which is, if you're a designer and you're using us for your work, are we making you more efficient? Um, are we making it easier for you to work with other people in the company? You know, are we making it so that you've got, basically, are, are we making your job easier? Is the mm-hmm. big question that we're asking. And mm-hmm. then for non-designers, uh, I think... Again, going back to visual communication, 
Are we teaching you how to visually communicate? Are we teaching you how to work with designers better? Are we teaching you how to contribute to the design process? If we can do that, I think that's a huge win. Wow. Okay. Um, so let me ask you a question. Um, sort of backing up, who who has influenced your thinking over the last few years? I mean, you've been on uh, quite a journey. Um, and I'd love to hear about either mentors or if there are just people out there that really have opened your eyes or changed the way that you view the world? Gosh, so many. (laughs) Um, I've just been really thankful along. Like I've just, I feel like I've been exposed to such wonderful people and they've been so helpful to me. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, and and still are, it's not just like a a thing of the past. It's a thing of the current, (laughs) Um, but uh, I, and I try to help others as well as much as I can. Um, One thing that's been really interesting is, is actually as we've hired on employees, you know, a lot of our employees have been mentors to me. So, you know, I'm not an expert in everything. I'm still junior in my career. But I think even if I had more experience in my belt, it's like an engineer, for example, you know, it's just impossible to be an expert in everything in an organization. And so that's been really awesome is it's kind of like a question I have back my back my mind as I hire somebody is, um, is this somebody that I want to learn from? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then, you know, you kind of have to check yourself. Uh, But that's been really incredible. So for functions like recruiting and uh, design and engineering and marketing, uh, we just have such incredible employees. That's been one thing that I'd never expected. But as we've started to just grow the team more, it has been a reality is that I'm just learning so much from the people at Figma. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back previously, uh, some of the people have really changed my thinking. Well, Tim, Tim definitely changed my thinking a lot. I think he changed the thinking of a lot of people through his writing, um, mm-hmm. Tim O'Reilly, that is. And um, I think another person I met through the O'Reilly Network that really influenced the way I think is Dana Boyd. I had a, really the pleasure of working with her for about a year or so, just as a research assistant, nothing major. But, uh, you know, she's just a really brilliant woman who has a very unique brain. And um, I really enjoyed my time spending, just spending time with her. I really enjoyed that. Another person that has been really involved in Figma and uh I'm very thankful to spend time with is Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to know him when I was an intern at LinkedIn and he's uh, he's one of our investors. He's just, uh, I'm pretty amazed that he's been able to make time for Figma when he's such a busy guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he has, and he's, uh, he's really helped us think through some of the most strategic decisions we've had to make. And then another one, um, I guess both of our, our board members have been, have been really awesome. I, I feel lucky to be able to, know that I can call our board members up at any time and, and ask for their advice on things. So those, those are John Lilly and Danny Reimer, uh, and they're both just great. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So beyond your own work and your, your company, what people or projects uh, grabbing your attention these days? Well, this could be another very long answer, but I'll try to keep <laughs> it short. Um, Gosh, there's so many things that I think are fascinating. Um, you know, some of the things that come to mind, like first, uh, I won't go into too much detail because I feel like a lot of them are things that everyone's interested in right now, but like deep learning is super interesting. There's just so many cool results that are coming out of that field right now. Um, mm-hmm. Another one is um, just climate change and how do we reduce carbon emissions? I think it's like a challenge for our generation. I don't think I have any unique insight there, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just something I'm tracking or... Mm-hmm. Another one's immuno-oncology. I think that there's just a ton of uh, really interesting results that are coming out of that that will um, extend people's lives and also sort of challenge our current healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just not set up for people living longer. 
And that's going to be a reality, finally, with Mu Oncology. Um, one thing that I can't get out of my head, though, that's maybe not as talked about, is uh, I don't know if it has a name, actually. So I'll just call it uh, Augmenting Human Senses. Um, mm. And I think there's been like just sporadic bursts of research in this, but it's been super fascinating to me. So, for example, I think in 2006, uh, there's this Wired article about Quinn Norton. Uh, and she put a magnet in her ring finger. And what she did with that magnet was uh, it would oscillate ever so slightly. And when she was near an electromagnetic field, and basically uh, it would, her brain would translate that into uh, a sort of sixth sense that showed her that she was near those fields. Hmm. Um, another example is this guy, David Eagleman, who gave a TED Talk recently about a, a vest that he had created in his lab that... Uh, this vest has um, all these motors on the back and they will vibrate. So, you know, pretty slightly in small ways. And it allows people with hearing impairments to perceive auditory data through these small vibrations. And so mm. people that aren't able to hear the sounds can be translated to these vibrations and the brain over time can learn to translate these vibrations uh, into some signal that they can process. Supposedly I haven't experienced it myself, but that's what's been the news about it. And uh, there's also stuff like, you know, anklets uh, that, vibrate in the position of north so you can have a better sense of where north is as you walk around um anyway i just find that kind of like cluster of augmentation of human senses very interesting i think there's a lot more work that we'll see in that over the course of my life and uh i think it's really cool Mm, it is it's it's watching technology and design actually improve people's daily lives which is exactly so cool well dylan thank you so much for making time today really appreciate it absolutely thank you again for having me You can reach Dylan through his Twitter handle, at Zoink. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 